Just a quick reminder that I do now have a second podcast called Track Nerds, where I have guests on to discuss travel, exercise, and movies and TV. Check it out. Okay, enjoy the show. So, today we have Embrace of the Serpent, which was one I think I mentioned in my very first episode that I had not even heard of before researching movies for this project, but it was a 2015 nominee for Best Foreign Film, nominated by Columbia. I'm guessing you got a chance to watch it? I did, yep. What'd you think? Uh, it was it's pretty good. It was a really interesting story. I don't think I had ever known or really even thought about you know Central America around that time. But yeah, it was it was interesting. I liked the uh, the kind of like the past and then the future. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the guy's name, but the, uh, uh, the Amazonian the, the, the guy. shaman. Yeah, the shaman. The, the, yeah, the shaman. I think I think I got it. It took me forever, but I think I got it. It's a uh, Keramakate. Yeah. Okay. You make it sound easy. It took it. Well, it took me. It took me a while because it, it's. It, it. I was. I was taking my notes and I was spelling it, Kara Makate, and then Kate is just Kate, so Kara Makate. Okay. Yeah. So the time difference between the two uh, stories that it tells with uh, the first explorer coming and looking for the, uh, you know, the sacred plant, and then you find out a few minutes in that he died, but you don't really find out the circumstances of it until the end, and then. Uh, the new guy, you know, coming in and then what each of their intentions are and, and how that's handled by Karen Makate. Yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, and to your point, not really giving this part of the world much thought, I guess, yeah, I kind of had it considered. So, like, we're kind of aware of, like, okay, you think South America being, you know, under the thumb of the Spanish conquistadors and, you know, obviously that being followed up by some European settlement, and that's why that part of the world speaks, speaks Portuguese and Spanish. And then after that, it's like you flash forward to, and now they have drug warlords. But you don't think about that 100 years ago, and this movie set in 1909, you don't think about, well, they're still dealing with things. And, and, and the main focus here, so yes, the, the two different timelines deal with finding this, this certain kind of rare plant, but is the, the rubber plantations. So right. the Spaniards wouldn't have cared at all about rubber. They w- didn't know how to use it. And nowadays, I think we have synthetic rubber. But if you're looking at 100 years ago, when we knew all the positive benefits or uses for rubber, and yet didn't know how to make synthetic rubber, well, that made this part of the world, which I kind of did the research and said, this is like the only place they knew of where to even find this natural rubber. It became a huge place for getting ran over by Western powers who wanted this rubber and were going to enslave the people to get it. And that's kind of what we're dealing with. It's kind of like the background to what's going on here. So, yeah, so I guess we should say, as Logan kind of hinted, it's it's two parallel stories, one in 1909 and the other one, it says, in 1940. And it follows two different... Uh, so the, in 1909, it's, it's a German guy who is coming... Well, we, we see him and he's already there. He's been there, for, been there for a while, seems to really know his stuff and has kind of made friends with some some of the native peoples. He has a, a friend named Manduka, who's a tribesman mm-hmm. who kind of helps him out. And uh, this guy, is, it's the, Theo von Martius, was calling Theo, and he's sick. And they go and seek out this shaman, Karamakate, who they say is the only person in their last chance to heal him. I do like kind of way they organize this movie where they don't they don't give you a ton of information. You just they just kind of throw you into the world and you got to figure it out. Theo is sick. 
Karamakate doesn't like the idea of helping a white man who he sees as having destroyed his people. And I think I understood it correctly. He seems to think that his particular tribe has been destroyed altogether. But Theo claims to have been with them just a few years ago. And that's where he got the necklace. Yeah, I think that was right. Yeah, I think that was like the first kind of thing that he says is kind of how he convinces him to help him. Because he was like, oh, well, you know, he well, because he asked him where he got the necklace from. He said, oh, I got it from this tribe. He goes, well, that's impossible. They they died, you know, a long time ago. Like, they're, I'm the last one. And he's like, no, like, I, I was just talking to him. I'll take you to him if you help me out. But yeah, something, I, is it Manduko, the guy that helps uh, Theo? Yeah, Manduko, yeah. Manduka, yeah, uh, that was a, a cool or an interesting kind of relationship that he and Karamakate had because Karamakate is very much holding to the old, you know, traditional tribal ways and resents uh, Manduka for being, you know, westernized and for wearing western clothes Correct. and for, you know, hanging out with a white dude. Yes. And so that's kind of a, a, a tension that runs through that whole that whole 1909 storyline. Yes, and, and again, it just kind of highlighted, you know, when they run into some other natives, too, and just kind of dealing with that throughout. So, Karamakate gives Theo a temporary remedy. And actually, it's kind of a cool thing. I don't think I've ever seen this in any movie or anything. We kind of whips at this concoction, and it's kind of a powder, and he blows it into Theo's nose, and that's the way he administers the medicine. And it's a temporary fix. Theo actually feels a ton better, basically, immediately. But Karamakate tells him that it's it is temporary, and if they don't find this plant, and I'm not sure how to say this one, Yakruna, this this rare plant, that's the only thing that can save him long term. And if they don't find that, he's a dead man. And so they go off on their adventure to find this plant and Karamakate's tribe, which should be one and the same as far as uh, location goes. Then, yes, as you mentioned too, then we cut to a story of 1940, and an American scientist is coming back, having having read the journal of Theo that was published. He's looking for the same plant, and happens to run into an older Karamakate, so this is 31 years later, so he's not an older man. Basically, I would say he roughly he goes from, say, 30 to 60. Is that probably about right? Uh, Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, the kind of funny line we get there from the, in the 1940s uh, timeline is... The American scientist says, I've dedicated my life to the study of plants. And Karen Makate says, that's the most sensible thing I've ever heard a white man say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought that was good. And that storyline, I feel, I'm trying, I kind of, I'm kind of getting, I watched it a couple of days ago and I'm kind of getting the two timelines mixed up in my head. I feel like the, the most of the story is the 1909 storyline. And then just a little bit is kind of with, with the 1940, but both both they're still looking for still looking for the plant though. And I guess we don't really need to go into like since this isn't a specific historical event, other than both these scientists, we should say did really exist. So this movie is based off of the writings of Theo uh, von Martius, and then the other guy is an American named Richard Evan Schultz. Yeah, and uh, and of course his. Story doesn't necessarily fit at this point in our timeline since we're still just in 1909, and he's kind of a smaller part of the movie. But it is these two men's writings that were the inspiration for this story, as they both take place at a similar time period. And the character of Karamakate does seem to be invented for the movie, but he's kind of representative of the tribes, people of, of this area at this time. And the, the movie even ends with a dedication to all the lost tribes and it's even kind of a sad thing if you think about how many tribes there, even just in the last hundred years, have just disappeared forever. 
And I thought I wrote down maybe the ending quote. Yeah, okay. So the last line of the dedication says, uh, the film is dedicated to all the peoples whose songs we will never know. So in just a couple minutes ago here, I was looking up on History of Columbia, how a lot of these native tribes, there was just hundreds of these tribes within a relatively small geographic area of, you know, say, Columbia. And they basically didn't even understand each other's languages. So the town 10 miles away you might not even be able to communicate with them. And everybody, everything was just so insular, and each tribe was so unique. Then also when they dis- when they were gone, you know, probably from the European influence, they were just gone, and gone forever. And unfortunately, a lot of the uh, tribes, the only reason they were contacted in the first place was so that rubber barons, uh, as they call them in the movie and in real life, apparently, uh, but the rubber barons would have a slave labor force and then they were completely wiped out and that's you know obviously they weren't necessarily interested or didn't care about documenting the nuances the subtle differences between these tribes or their traditions or writings or whatever and uh, the only way that we know about them is from people like the two guys in the movie but even they their documentation is just a small small fraction you know of, of what the knowledge that was available right and uh now that a lot of that is just lost to history because there were you know i mean entire tribes completely wiped out by the, the slave uh labor forces to get the uh the rubber out of the trees correct and without these two guys we might not know that we were missing out on so much so they they gave us some but the biggest thing they gave us was the knowledge that we lost so much and without them right. maybe we wouldn't have realized how much was lost yeah, and then they run across the other native. So uh, Manduka is kind of mad when he sees the buckets set up uh, at the base of the rubber trees to collect it. So basically it looks like, again, I just did some very superficial research because that's the name of the game here. So uh, <laughs> a, a rubber tree, you basically, you, you scar it and that you just basically you cut the bark and it does seem like it's the inner layer of the bark that secretes basically raw latex and you collect it in the bucket. Yeah, so, it, looks, it looks like at least the way that they showed it in the movie and other pictures of it that I saw, you make kind of a, a diagonal cut going down, like from each side. So you'll start and then it goes down and you do that and you put a little, basically a little tap at the end. And so the rubber, the yes. sap will like run down that cut exactly. and then run off there into a bucket. And then, you know, once that dries up, then you just move down, like move down an inch and do another cut, you know, and just move it down the tree. And that's where you see the trees that have those, those scars down the side of them like that. Right. And so they run across a little, uh, clearing or whatever and there's oh, probably half a dozen or a dozen trees with these buckets at the bases all collecting the basically it looks like milk but it's you know just kind of it's or glue and it's it's this raw rubber and manduka is mad and goes and kicks over all the buckets and it's just like super super just mad and i think just and again kind of you know having done the research he's just mad because he knows his people were exploited to have done this labor and then right after he kicks them all over a one-armed native comes in and is like desperately and pathetically going around and trying to gather the liquid uh, rubber off the ground and back into the bucket buckets because you just know he's going to get in trouble if his masters basically find out that all his work has been for naught. And then he turns to Theo and, and the two natives there and basically just begs them to kill him. And it's just, yeah. again, just, it, I think it just highlights the, the desperation and, and the horror that uh, was going on in the world at this time in this place. Yeah, one arm and one eye. Oh, I didn't even notice that. And I'm pretty sure he was, uh, he was covered in like whip scars as well. Mm. But yeah, and yeah, he, he begs them, begs them to kill him. Manduka even goes to get a gun, and we think he does he kill him. He almost does. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then, well, and then, like, you know, a few minutes later, as they're leaving, they can hear him screaming and then a gunshot. So, presumably, oh, he, right. the Masters did end up, you know, killing him over, over spilled rubber. Glue. But, or spilled, sorry, spilled rubber. Yeah, but, yeah. And, yeah, they, they run into a little tribe that kind of takes them in that uh, Theo th- seems to have a little bit of a rapport with. Of course, then they steal his, his compass, and there's a little bit of a kerfuffle over that. And the interesting thought there was... So when they steal his compass, Theo's kind of adamant that they get it back. And like, well, one, of course, they need it to travel. And two, as they reluctantly leaves without it, he's kind of telling, telling Manduka and, and Kiramakate that, well, it's not right. Like, they have a navigation system that's based on the stars. And if I give them this kind of technology, then they won't need that, you know, history and, and, and ancient system anymore. And Kiramakate kind of chastises him and says, like, you're not entitled to have this sole hold on technology and knowledge. Knowledge is for everybody. How dare you deny them knowledge? Just basically just typical white man kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, that's kind of fascinating because I, I see both sides of that. I see Theo not wanting these arts to be lost, but at the same time, you totally see where Karamakati is coming from. It's like, okay, if you have a better way, how dare you not allow them the better way? Right, yeah. I thought that was kind of, it was like a uh, turn-of-the-century Star Trek prime directive yes. you know, moral question. You know, how, how, how do we handle this? Do we do we give them the knowledge and, you know, they lose their tradition? But, you know, is it really our place to keep that from them? I, I thought that was interesting, too, yeah. So the plan itself that they're looking for, I was still a little confused by. So the only thing I have to go on is uh, the Wikipedia page for the movie that refers to the Yakruna plant sends you to a link to another plant that I didn't see the name Yakruna on here anywhere. Of course, we're also dealing with a movie that was made, it's it's in Spanish and then some of these native languages, so there could be a little bit of a lost in translation thing going on here. So I'll, I'll kind of take it for granted that this is the correct plant. But uh, what it deals heavily with here is uh, the idea of uh, psychedelics and that the, the plants they're looking for could definitely have some uh, psychotropic effects and I was trying to tie that into looking at shamans of the Amazon at the time. And, and there is something to that. So like uh, like in, in this part of the world, in the kind of the Amazon basin, it does even kind of talk about how the shamans and healers would be people who specialized in the use of ayahuasca and other hallucinogens like that and is part of like their healing art and uh, religious ceremonies and things like that. And again, very superficial research, but just kind of gives you an idea of, of what we're dealing with. And then obviously then the plant they're looking for is basically like a psychotropic. Yeah, so it also says here that the powder that Karamakate keeps blowing up Theo's nose for their whole trip is likely another hallucinogenic, mm. you know, or or at least some kind of, you know, drug to make him, I guess, it, it probably isn't actually, you know, making him better, but it at least is <laughs> getting his mind off of it, probably. I, I guess, I guess. And then, I, I mean, you know, the uh, with the Yakruna, once they... At the end of the movie, when he, you know, makes it for Evan, the American scientist, I mean, it's based on the the scenes after. It's obviously a, a very powerful uh, psychotropic because the entire movie is black and white. Yes. And then right there, you know, he, he starts drinking the, the tea or whatever that's that's made from that uh, Yakuna plant and goes into this kind of acid trip, basically. Yeah, acid trip. Uh, but it's the whole thing is in color, like really bright. Yes, like neon almost in this color. black and white movie goes into color for the acid trip. I think it's not acid. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. His psychedelic trip there. Well, and it, it must have been pretty powerful because you know, as you as you know, 
with with uh, you know from movies and TV at the time. Everything was black and white back then, and so this guy he might have been the first person to actually see colors. <laughs> Um, well, let's see. Wizard of Oz, say nineteen forty. Wizard of Oz was nineteen thirty nine, though. So there was it was out there a little oh, bit. Oh, okay. So well, yes, maybe not. yes. So co- color had been introduced, I think, in the nineteen thirties. <laughs> maybe that was one of the things, you know, that the the the, uh, the native tribes, you know, they had this knowledge of color since you know. Oh all right, along. right. So it was it was it Thomas Edison who invented color? <laughs> anyway, anyway. So okay, so tying this all back into the story, what we were just talking about when they when they do finally meet up to where Theo was taking them and the tribe that he said was missing, Kermakate is basically really upset because it's not what he was thinking. It's basically a compound where it does seem some of his people are, but they're also cultivating the plant, which he seems as sacrilegious. Like the whole idea is that we just kind of like take what nature gives us and. And we just kind of have to find it. The idea that you would grow it is just obscene to him. So he actually starts burning it. Then I kind of didn't really follow this exactly to figure out where the history was of this. But then, like, the Colombians themselves show up. So I'm guessing that's, like, the ones of European descent trying to be in charge yeah. of the country versus the actual natives. Or, obviously, then our, our people who are Theo heroes from Europe. But then jumping forward to the end of the 1940 storyline where... They're looking for basically what Kiramakate calls the last Yakruna. And when they find this one little flower, looks like a little orchid. He basically says, this is the last one. I know because I destroyed all the rest. And here's where the the American basically kind of gives up the game that, no, I'm actually here for rubber also 30 years later because we're getting ready to go into World War II. What I was kind of reading online, too, is the U.S. definitely didn't want to rely on Southeast Asian rubber sources, or maybe that was a different time. That's true, and, I mean, they, they didn't want to, and they couldn't, because... Japan. War with Japan. Yes, okay, that's what it was. So they, did, so they needed another source of rubber. Yeah, and that was kind of an interesting, like, dichotomy between the two timelines, is, you know, Theo basically is looking for Yakruna his entire time, and he only finds rubber, like there's rubber everywhere. You know, they, they run mm. into the guy, you know, who, who's killed, you know, for the rubber. And then Evan is looking for rubber and then basically finds the Yakuna. And the other, yeah, the, the other thing, the uh, when they find that village or the compound or whatever, where, where the, uh, they're cultivating the Yakuna, there's that group of guys there that um, are basically only growing it just to get wasted all the time. And they basically tell him, like, hey, you know, the Colombians are coming. There's, you know, no reason in trying to fight them or anything. We're just going to basically get wasted. It's the end of the world. That kind of cult that they come back on at the old monastery or whatever? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking about right before he burns the, the plants. Oh, yes, yes. There's that, that hut with all the guys in it. Yeah, just, yeah okay, yeah, yeah. And he, gets, and he gets super upset about it. And that was another thing, too, that was, well, because he, he's uh, telling Theo the entire movie, like, we can't, you know, eat this kind of fish and we can't do this. We can't do that. And uh, there was a, a word for it. But basically, it's like all these restrictions, like dietary restrictions and things that they're allowed to do and not do based on their tradition. Right. So it's it's extra upsetting to him when, you know, they're not only cultivating this plant, but, based, you know, it, it doesn't even have a sacred purpose for him anymore. They're just using it to get messed up and uh, take their mind off the impending Colombian invasion. Yes, yes. And the other thing, and I guess kind of kind of jumping all over here, but one thing I thought was interesting too is, and I, I don't know how to say this word, but when Karen Makate keeps talking about the idea of a Keakwa or Chulak, Chuchayakwa, Cheaki, I, I, I have no idea how to say this. Oh, the 
the ghost or yes, whatever. Basically a doppelganger is how he explained it almost. The idea yeah. that, and I don't even understand how, how he kind of worked it in his mind, but basically he was worried that he'd become a copy of himself because he had no memories anymore. So the older version of him... He always wondered if, like, was it Theo or, or Evans that kind of took a, a picture of him and he was worried it was going to be like, you know, it's the whole steal your soul kind of thing. But, yeah, the idea that a copy of you would exist and would fool your, your family and everything, it would, but it wouldn't actually be you. And so, one, I think that was kind of a neat idea. But then the idea that he's worried he has become the copy of himself who isn't really himself. I don't know, just kind of a neat spiritual idea. And I was looking that up. And the movie seems to do it differently to what the traditions actually exist. The traditions are, this kind of refers to maybe a specific kind of, oh, uh, trickster god, I guess, for lack, you know, like a Loki in, in Norse mythology, for lack of a better word. And uh, it's almost like it's a specific person who could transform himself into your loved ones or into animals in an attempt to kind of lure you away but not necessarily that it becomes you, if that makes sense. But I saw yeah. that just just kind of an interesting uh, addition into the mythology of the world there. Last little note here, psychotropics in general. So not so much with Theo's timeline in 1909, and not to, I guess, jump too far ahead of our overall timeline here by going into Richard Everton Schultz's timeline here in, in 1940. So he was a researcher, and I think he worked at Harvard or went to Harvard. Anyway, so he's kind of one of the pioneers in uh, hallucinogenic plants and stuff, and and he actually co-wrote a book with uh, the guy who discovered LSD, and so a lot of his work in the 40s and into the 50s seems to have dealt with the beginnings of understanding and studying psychedelics. And it says his undergraduate thesis uh, studied uh, peyote use among uh, the Kiowa and Oklahoma. So he's kind of a contemporary of, of authors like uh, Aldous Huxley and, and William Burroughs. And uh, Timothy Leary was a Harvard professor at the same time as Schultz here. But he kind of, Schultz is more of the academic of all this. So yes, he did this stuff, but he didn't necessarily endorse it as a lifestyle or as this important thing. He was more just kind of intellectually and academically curious about it versus these guys saw it as like this huge spiritual thing. And then the funny quote here they have is that, you know, after, you know, Burroughs, you know, talked about ay- ayahuasca as this, you know, metaphysical earth shattering experience. Schultz just said, uh, that's funny, Bill. All I saw was colors, which, <laughs> which again, in the movie, we see him see those colors when Karamakate gives him, uh, basically as kind of his reward for coming on this journey with them, despite the fact that he was just kind of looking for rubber. He gives him, he kind of does his little magic with that last, uh, Yakruna plants and turns it into whatever psychedelic and administers it to our guy. And he then he goes on that trip, which he just sees nothing but color, kind of bringing it all full circle there. But yeah, pretty good movie. It was nominated for the Oscar for Best Foreign Film, and it's pretty good. It's a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. I would say you could argue it's a little slow, and I don't know if that's part of that's the black and black and white, but it is kind of a fascinating story. And an important look into this part of the world that is all too often neglected and has definitely been abused and and uh, taken advantage of. I mean, not I mean, for for centuries. If you go back to the conquistadors, and then you look to 100 years ago, and the 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 rubber what did they call it? The rubber uh, the rubber boom the rubber boom right. And and then you know with you know the drug stuff today and just yeah it's just a, a lot of wasted human life in, in in that part of the world. I would probably say that this qualifies as a 
a movie vegetable. It, it is kind of slow. The, the non-linear storytelling does take a little bit of, of getting used to. And uh, they, they don't really explain a lot. Yes. As far as like, you know, who are these guys? What are these guys doing? You know, it's but it it, it is really good. And it, I think it's it's an important movie. That's a good way to say it. And uh, and I'm very impressed. I Props to the guy who wrote it here. It looks like he's he's not even 40 years old yet. Yeah, Colombian-born director, Kiro Guerrera. I mm-hmm. apologize for all my pronunciations, as always. But I'd be curious to see what he what he continues to do next. He's directed some other things, too. This is the only one I've seen. Very impressive script. If you think about it, he's just going off of these old, old, one in 100 years old, one several decades old, going off these journals and writing a whole screenplay based on that. So... A very impressive artistic accomplishment, and I, I do agree that it's one of those things where it it is important and a good movie to watch, even if it's probably not one I'm gonna put on my high on my rewatch list. I'm I'm definitely glad I was exposed to this movie. So kind of focusing on the 1909 side of things. So elsewhere in the world at this time, which I think we skipped last week. So this was 1909. In 1908, the Ford Model T came out for the first time. In 1909, a revolution forces the Shah of Iran to abdicate in favor of his son. And a year later, in 1910, George V becomes king of England. And he's kind of interesting in that he is the king who was the grandson of Queen Victoria and the grandfather of Queen Elizabeth II. So he's kind of right halfway in between generationally of them. So, yes, yeah, so that's all for Embrace the Servant. And next week, we'll be headed over to India with Pather Panchali. We'll see you next week. <laughs>